0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, in customer experience, know where you start before you plan where you're going.
1: We've started down this journey. We have a clear momentum. There's a wave we're all riding or most agencies are on board and riding. But unfortunately, a lot of times in government, we fail to document the baseline of where we came from before we start that transformation.
0: The data questions to ask to make better decisions. What
1: are we looking at and what are we talking
0: about Strategically, and
1: when do we
2: need to make pivots based on what the data is informing us, but also based on real world events
3: and the
0: biotech future that's happening right now.
3: DARPA had a program where they you know, literally grew a runway <laughs> in, in about 48 hours, I believe, and its runway has been in use in Guam for over a year now.
0: It's Thursday, May 26, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The leader of the Technology Modernization Fund board says the board will award all of its money by the end of the year. Raylene Young of the General Services Administration says the board will make, quote, very exciting investments with the $756 million the fund still has. Young says the board has more than 130 proposals that add up to more than two and a half billion dollars. Major General Kevin Kennedy is the Biden administration's nominee to lead the Air Force's Information Warfare Unit. If the Senate confirms him, he'll succeed Lieutenant General Timothy Haw as commander of the 16th Air Force. Haw is now deputy commander at Cyber Command. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. A long list of CIOs and CTOs across governments coming to the UiPath Together Summit. You'll learn about automation from leaders in government and industry. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City on June 14th. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The White House executive order on customer experience includes 35 high-impact service providers that deliver benefits, services, and programs to citizens. Jonathan Bennett's technical director of digital government solutions at Adobe, he's former chief enterprise architect at the Agriculture Department. At the Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference, he tells me he thinks this is the renaissance age for customer experience in government.
1: Customer experience is being recognized as an important value, and the experience that we receive in our private sector lives uh, is not only uh, desirable, but expected mm-hmm. and deserved in the uh, in our experiences working with government. Also, as an employee working in government, y- you get up every day for the mission, and you want to be able to deliver on that mission most effectively and efficiently and feel good about what you're doing. And when you know you're providing a better overall experience and people are... Um, getting the, the benefits they deserve uh, or doing so quicker, you feel good about what you do, it's a it's a virtuous cycle, right? Mm-hmm. It's a win-win. So uh, that that is really important. And, and we have truly evolved. Um, if you think about when I was at Department of Agriculture and we were selected as the Lighthouse Agency for IT Modernization and partnered with GSA and those centers of excellence. And one of those was the, this, the Customer Experience, COE. And um, it was just, you know, just starting to break ground on what is a defined customer experience what should it be uh, how to map out that customer journey for the first time and look at all those points Uh, we have come such a long ways but yet we have so much more to go yeah
0: when you talk about this process evolving have the tools that uh, are available to practitioners in government for customer experience is that what's evolved is it a mindset that's evolved is it both of those, something else, what's that look like?
1: Certainly tools continue to evolve, but I think that, for the most part, the tools have been there. Mm -hmm. Um, The private sector's been doing this very effectively for a long time. If you think about the largest global brands that do this really well, Amazon, Nike, Marriott, just to name a few, they uh, understand what their customers want, need the channel uh, of their choice. How to personalize at scale the content through an omni-channel approach and get you what you need with even suggestions of how to best complete that journey and and move forward uh, when we all um, take a break or, or or don't complete the form on time or you know, or we come back a little later, right? Mm-hmm. So industry's been doing this really well. Government is catching up, like like sometimes we, we, we do in government. Mm-hmm. Um, it is more a mindset change uh, that I've seen from when I worked at the Food and Nutrition Service and we thought about the the, the client and the recipient of, I was the, the IT program manager for the SNAP program, as you may remember, and, mm-hmm. and You know, we built a mapping application to help people find where they can uh, uh, utilize their benefits, their EBT benefits. It was the first time we'd ever put on a map the 250,000 authorized retailers for the SNAP program. And I wanted to build a a, a mobile app. Mm -hmm. And my administrator said to me, we can't do that. And the administrator for SNAP said, you know, we couldn't do that. I said, why? I said, because... The public perception of recipients this is in 2010 uh, having mobile phones don't go hand in hand right yeah. if you're receiving snap benefits you probably don't have a, a mobile phone let alone a smartphone at least that's what congress thinks but that's not true that's probably the only internet connection that somebody has so meeting people where they are is really important so it's an evolution of mindset and also policy legislation there's been some incredible legislation and, and momentum uh, people are waking up in government in both the the executive branch, but also legislative branch. Uh, The first was the passage of the 21st Century Integrated Digital Experience Act in in December of 2018 that um, highlighted three key areas for for improvements in customer experience, one being um, Uh, website modernization and making sure it's mobile-friendly. Two is forms modernization. Forms are not sexy, but they're a huge opportunity for improving customer experience. I mean, every application for a driver's license to a nutritional assistance benefit starts with a form or application, correct? And the third is uh, digitizing uh, signatures and electronic signatures, and, and boy, did you know the pandemic prove that we needed to have electronic signatures. Uh, wet signatures are, are, are just you know archaic. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was in 2018, and then also um, uh, recently, this last December, uh, the current administration passed the uh, executive order yep. for customer experience, and um, on the heels of uh, of an executive order on inclusion, diversity, equity, right, mm-hmm. and so. To me, again, we're living in this really special time. I, I get teased by calling it the Renaissance time, but I really do believe we're going to look back and say this was the awakening yeah. when people woke up and said, "Wow, people deserve expect a better experience, and this is how we can do it." And oh, by the way, you know it's hard to recruit and retain talent in government, but if people feel better about what they do, improve, improving the ex- employee experience improves the customer experience, and vice versa.
0: So one. The, to use that private sector model because for years especially regarding customer experience kind of the naysayers in this community when you talked about it would say well yeah your examples of amazon and nike and all of that are fine for the private sector but we're government we do things differently they're all trying to make a profit i would argue um and in fact I, a cio i talked to recently said that argument's terrible because those companies they're main job is not just to turn a profit it's to return value to shareholders Mm -hmm. and if you think about it the government's job is essentially in a a different kind of value it's not cash value but to return
1: value to taxpayers right Is right. is
0: it the same model in your view does that make sense
1: I always brought that model because I spent 10 years in government before I came to government to serve for 10 years and I always brought the mentality as a taxpayer first and um, a good steward of taxpayers dollars when I was a core and a program manager. Uh, I do believe that people at the end of the day 100% um, believe in that, you know, have that mentality and want to uh, see as value for the taxpayers. with that said, you know, it is really hard um, to move the ball forward in government uh, with, you know, bureaucratic processes, delays, you know. Um, so I think sometimes people lose track of the, um, the, the sake that it's policy-driven. You know, we can't do that. We tried this before, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I think it, it, for the majority of people, mm-hmm. uh, they are focused on delivering value uh, efficiently, effectively, and saving money. Um, in the process
0: how should an agency determine say two years from now how their customer experience efforts are going they're all developing strategies in mm-hmm. response to the executive order uh, there are some pretty common themes i think among those strategies not surprising um, but how do you measure at some point in the future? Yes, we're on the right track, or no, we maybe need to readjust. I, I mean, it's is it is it as simple as just surveying the people that you do business with?
1: I think that's the the the, the best question you could ask, and and what the, the thing we need most right now, Francis, is that we um, we've started down this journey. We have a clear momentum. There's a wave we're all riding, or most agencies are on board and riding. But unfortunately, a lot of times in government, we fail to document the baseline of where we came from before we start that transformation mm-hmm. and that is always problematic in any uh transformation initiative yeah. but the biggest thing we're missing right now around CX is the measurement the performance measurement and I'm not talking about you know unnecessary burdens on reporting you know uh, more and more again I said it's difficult to deliver on the mission of government already but you know fatara uh, took some time to get here, right? For the ability to have a scorecard, to be able to measure where we are and how far we've come and where we're going and get everyone on the same page. I think that is the next necessary evolution in customer experience is adding a CX element or two to something like the Fatara scorecard or being able to universally agree on measurements across the, the industry and say, here's where we're moving the needle and where's here's where we still can, you know, and, and borrowing lessons learned as practices From each other Mm -hmm. right this is not this is a team sport this does not have to be an individual uh contributor type of activity
0: yeah as you describe it that way it strikes me cx is maybe a little different than other measures maybe it's similar to cyber though because you want to make sure i would imagine that you're measuring outcomes and not outputs if you increase the your call volume in a call center 15 percent, and everybody hates the experience and doesn't get the answers they want you've you're worse off than when you started, so That's you right. haven't really gained anything. That's
1: right. And, and when you talk about that particular example, uh, there's been a lot of modern uh, improvements and modernizations around call centers, but, but call centers are still an expensive option compared to the digital option, mm-hmm. right? So there's several surveys that have been out there that if we're talking pennies, you know, whatever, there's been lots of versions. IRS one time said it cost them seven, t- 22 cents to process uh, a response digitally where it cost $25 for that same in a call center, and $250 for every in-person transaction in a office, mm-hmm. right? So we're talking fractions of the cost. So if we can handle, and I just attended a session earlier this morning talking about the use of AI and ML in helping to ensure that at least we manage and measure, we get to the the, the, the lower end, uh, easily answerable, answerable um, type of requests and stuff, and we get the stuff that requires problem, you know, uh, solving an actual real human thought to the people, let them focus on the higher level activities and then knock out uh, some of the other stuff. Um, that's a better use of time for both the employee and the person who's calling up and lowering that time tax, as we've talked about uh, sometimes around the CX community on people.
0: Jonathan Bennett, former chief enterprise architect at the Agriculture Department. You can read more about the CX executive order in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Never trust, always verify is the essence of zero trust. If you want to secure your organization, you need to verify more than just users. You also need to secure devices. Tanium can help you gain clarity and control across all endpoints to secure your perimeter. Visit tanium.com slash federal to learn more. The explosion in the emphasis on customer experience in governments leading to new questions. Daryl Peak is former director of digital innovation and solutions at the Department of Homeland Security. He's now a board member of act i the host of the Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference. He tells me there he suggests a question that all agencies should ask themselves.
2: The one thing that I, I am really interested in, though, is that when I talk to certain government leaders, I ask them, who is your customer? And some of them are able to answer that, but some of them are not. So so really trying to get that feedback loop is important, but also being able to define who is that persona that you need to work with in order to make sure that feedback is going to be tangible and actionable.
0: So the answer to that question, who is our customer, too, I think is fascinating because when you listed the three people who are on your panel yeah. and you talked about Stacy first yes, and if i recall correctly she was talking about working with clinical researchers yes, so that's an absolutely. external customer absolutely. the other two the marine corps and the other guest on your panel it, it, I, I jotted down just quickly internal mm. because they sounded like they were focused primarily on internal people within their own agencies right. and i think that's a fairly new wrinkle in the government space just within the last couple of years that people are actually applying that term mm-hmm. and thereby applying that mindset to how you deal with people inside your own organization. Is that a fair read absolutely, on my
2: part? Absolutely, a fair read. And one of the things that we said is that we did a pile on to the customer experience. We also talked about the importance of the employee experience. Mm-hmm. And in between that, as you were just indicating, it's a stakeholder experience because everyone is not necessarily an employee of the agency, but they are dependent upon the services that you are providing in order to deliver that citizen services that's needed on the back end mm-hmm. uh, to Americans. So that that is really important.
0: What do you think is the evolution of the customer experience movement in the federal government? Because, I mean, 10 years ago, it almost didn't exist. It almost, there were, there were a few people and everybody kind of looked at them like, this is government, we don't do that. And right. now it's a thing with an executive order and the, the gravitas, the juice of the Biden administration behind it. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the Trump administration explored it too. And I wonder what, more you see what more potential you see for that to propagate across government
2: absolutely and i think that what's happening is that commercial is driving a lot of what we're seeing in government because there are certain expectations that employees as well as citizens have on the services that are being provided Mm -hmm. um it's interesting when i think about uh when i used to do a lot of quality assurance it says uh today's delighter is tomorrow's satisfier Right. And being able to understand that it is always a trajectory is never ending. Right. Stacey actually uh, mentioned that in our panel is that, you know what? when we talk about digital transformation, it never ends, right? It's a marathon, it's not a race. We won't be able to uh, really check the box on anything because it's always going to be progressing and we have to make sure that we meet the needs of not only our stakeholders, but also that we are uh, keeping up with technologies to ensure the it's functional, mm-hmm. right? Is actionable and that it's secure.
0: So you used a word there that I think is important because I, I'm fascinated as somebody who uses words for a living, how people use words to describe whatever their thing is. Right. And for a long time, we talked about IT modernization. Mm. And I think that word left a uh, an impression in people's minds that at some point we'd be modern, mm-hmm. and then we could go think about something else. Right. And I want to give credit to Suzette Kent, maybe not accurately, but I think she tried to twist that with the transformation concept that you just, alluded to she was at least one of the people who started that conversation yep absolutely yeah
2: And when you think about uh, cloud, when you think about cybersecurity, uh, when even when you think about uh, application rationalization, a lot of guidance was put out uh, by Suzette and Margie Graves and others. And it really was speaking to the core of what digital transformation meant. Because if we'd never baseline it, then you have such a gap that's created between those who are able to do it effectively and those who are still trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that we are looking to close the gap. And actually, uh, as David Larimore was speaking, he talked a lot about maturity models. And maturity models are looking at understanding like the averages but also understanding who is doing it very well so this way there's opportunity for information sharing and those who are maybe not doing it so well but then you're able to then talk to them coach them up so that this way they can improve the outcome they're trying to achieve
0: are we getting better do you think at that idea sharing that you just described at at spreading the awareness of what everybody's doing everywhere so that somebody can finally start saying oh, I should go ask Daryl what he's doing with the same thing that I'm working on instead of trying to figure it all out on my own.
2: You know, Act I act and other organizations are really doing a job great job at the public-private partnership and I think with these organizations it is the the actually the glue that kind of keeps things together mm-hmm. um, someone asked me after leaving uh, government was it hard to transition into industry and what I said was you know I was able to uh, remain uh, successful and not necessarily have such a difficult transition because I had organizations like act I act I was still in the conversations I knew with the folks areas were and I knew what the outcomes were so I, I think that um, really it is starting to get better you are starting to see COIs created uh, not only within the organization but within agencies mm-hmm. right you see agencies taking the lead on creating their own working groups in order to really discuss these topics and really get achievable outcomes defined and also really be truthful and where they are in that process but mm-hmm. then I would say that there is an opportunity with the data And saying, well, how do we understand the data portion of it, right? Because there's a lot of data. But also being able to take a step back and say, are we asking the right question to get to our goal? Mm -hmm. And those are some things that are critical as you look at digital transformation. You don't transform for transformation's sake. You really do it to achieve an outcome. And I think that's what the conversations are actually leading us
0: to. And you make a great point because early on in the data revolution, whatever you want to call it, um i can't remember who it was but it, it was a, a data professional in government at the time who said the reason data will be valuable to us in the in the future is because of the questions that we'll be able to ask it and it will give us the answers back and help us make decisions and this is long before the evidence act and long before all of these um uh, pieces of legislation and guidance and so on. It was a long time ago. But that's still, in 2022, the core of the value that data delivers for government, right?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. When we think about the importance of transformation, when you talk about adoption of cloud, adoption of uh, these tools and and, and utilization of these various products, um, it really comes down to how the data is being used Mm. in those. Um, And and I think that when we talk about data, uh, being able to have access and aggregate it together to give us a conversation starter is really important because some of the questions you already know, and you already want to ask, right? How many of this, or where do they live here? Um, and but some of them are still uncovered. Like, well, I didn't know that we were going to uncover that data on maybe a healthcare topic or a financial services topic. But it's because we have this information that we can do it together. And a lot of us are are still in the beginning stages of that maturity model to say, okay, well, what data do we have? Um, I remember being part of the uh, CDM program at DHS. And one of the first things was identifying what data assets you have. And there were certain agencies that had a lot of information in regards to the assets. And there were certain agencies that weren't able to properly calculate all their assets. So it it really does come down to the the maturity of how the data is being managed, Mm -hmm. um, how you're able to then look at it and analyze it. And then if there's any predictive natures in it to make future decisions, then you can utilize it. I
0: appreciate you taking the conversation there too, Daryl, because to go back to that, conversation that I had, um, that was the extrapolation was, you know, what's the ideal end state? And the ideal end Mm -hmm. state, as that person expressed it, was that we won't have to think of all the questions. The data will show us questions, answers to questions that we didn't know we should ask. Absolutely, and this, that seems to have been what's borne out in the in the concept and now the execution of predictive analytics. Right, and,
2: and and then it comes down to one: what are we looking at, and what are we talking about strategically, and when do we need to make pivots based on what the data is informing us, but also based on real world events, mm-hmm. and real world events are actually being you know discovered based on real time data. Right? Real-time analytics. And being able to to leverage that is is super important. But also, how do the various roles that are within an organization have domain and ownership of these discussions, Mm -hmm. right? Now you have chief data officers, chief customer experience officers, chief technology officer, chief information officer, chief business officer. And you have these different functions, but are they working in a a synergistic way in order to achieve a outcome in conversation? or are there certain silos that are created because of the the budget that's allocated or even the applications uh, that need to be created in order to execute a certain
0: function. Daryl Peak, the former Director of Digital Innovation and Solutions at the Department of Homeland Security. You can read more about data across government in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The 13th year of Fed Talks launches June 15th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia will offer lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and sign up for it in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering is about to get a makeover. One of the people who will get a new title there is Barbara McQuiston. Her title now is Director of Defense Research and Engineering for Research and Technology at DOD. At the Emerging Innovation and Technology Conference, she tells Ravi Dankanakode of SAIC biotechnology is a huge enabler for the Defense Department.
3: It's at an interesting stage right now because we can, uh, DARPA had a program where they, you know, literally grew a runway <laughs> in in about forty eight hours I believe and it's runway's been in use in Guam for over a year now. So production of, of cement is, is is something that we can look at from a biotechnology side. But being able to do things in a laboratory is different than being able to scale it up. But the real innovation challenges here are in the biomanufacturing for a whole range of things. You know, obviously, we think a lot about vaccines and, and medical side, but in materials and in a lot of other uh, parts, pieces, and how we're looking at uh, solution space for biomanufacturing, the the opportunities are huge, and they're huge because they also help us with some of our challenges in energy and climate change and other things. What we need to think about is how to scale up the manufacturing and in another way what I like to look at too is what I call scaling out. Because a lot of these processes can be mobile and they can be more for on-site demand which of course from the military side is crucial because of the contested logistics which we talked about earlier. And so being able to use uh, 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 bi- biological processes in order to have to have your cement or in order to uh, be able to have energetic materials or other things on-site at demand to be able to, as it, like my old DARPA days, be able to look at where you can do fuel production on site um, and how you can use a, a magnitude of different materials to do that and biological processes and then being able to do it on demand is really what's going to be how we change thinking about the future. Again it's sort of a paradigm change in doing that.
4: And I guess all the other things you were mentioning, like AI, are also going to speed up. The Absolutely. The biotechnology.
3: When, when this comes together, it comes together with information and data protection. It comes together with being able to use AI to be able to uh, look at these manufacturing processes real time as they're going on and be able to modify them. So we have a number of tool sets across the board that are going to accelerate uh, manufacturing on these sides. And that's true also in areas like additive manufacturing and new, new advanced materials.
1: Yeah.
4: Uh, Any more questions? There you go. Neil?
3: Yeah. um, I got a softball
1: for you, Neil Chaudhry, by the way, uh, GSA. So, you know, as a lifelong public servant, one of the best, some of the best experiences I've had is watching service members and even other public servants, and, you know, that includes our industry partners, you know, innovating on the edge in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, right? Out of necessity. So, you know, can you talk about some of the different strategies that organizations like DARPA are using to crowdsource innovative ideas? from existing public servants? Thank you.
3: Um, you know, I, I, I'm probably not the best one to comment on some of their newer programs in doing that, but I do know embedded entrepreneurs and being able to put more uh, even within their programs and uh, uh, in, in their projects to get that rapid development going and get those innovative ideas moving forward. I know they're doing I from a crowdsourcing standpoint I know there's they're launching bringing DARPA to the people which exactly which is looking at reaching out and having that going forward. So I would highly recommend that you uh, pay attention to what DARPA is doing in that program in particular um, that they're launching. uh, I think you should be able to find it on the website to get the the specifics of it, but that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about both in in, embedding innovation and then reaching out and pulling the sort of crowdsourcing and ideas forward as well.
4: And while we wait for another question, you mentioned contested logistics a few times, right? and supply chain issues and all (laughs) that. Um, Could you expand on that a little bit more? Is this going to be the norm of the future or are we going to see an end to this?
3: Well obviously the pandemic, there's been economic disruption which has put it sort of front and centre. I would say that the military is always concerned with this because if you go back historically um, you're getting fuel and oftentimes to the point where you need it can be a change <laughs> in whether you win or don't win the the conflict. Um, so it's a so logistics lines have always been traditionally a military concern. I would say now it's a concern for us from the standpoint of people awakening from the pandemic and realizing what the global dependency is. I would also say going into the future that with climate change, uh, this problem is going to be uh, with us as we look at uh, being able to recover from some of the large storms, fires, other sort of potential storms. Look at what happened in Texas when the, when, when the winter came there and it, and it disrupted our, our, our energy production down there. Uh, this is something that's not going away. So we need to think about how to be resilient. Again, sort of it goes back to what I was talking about, scaling up but also scaling out. How can you have uh, uh, on-demand pharmaceuticals for instance so that you have production that you can do on-site how can you be more resilient uh, military is oftentimes the first ones to come in at disaster relief so what happens when they come in they need to think about energy they need to think about drinking water they need to think about medical support they need to think about all these things on site and might not have the luxury to be waiting for supplies to come in and move in, so to help people. So I, I really think that this is something that's a challenge for us and a challenge for our 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 world right now, and how to do that in not only resilient ways, uh, on demand ways, but also with um, uh, low energy use. Uh, I would say because you know obviously when you're doing these things, you can't always guarantee in a disaster what kind of you you know energy you have. But I always, I, I, I also think of things from this the point of um, uh, plenty in the sense that there's plenty of energy around us, we just need the ability to capture it, control it, and store it and use it. So I think there's, uh, I'm, I'm an optimist, I believe that there's many solutions around us and even solutions that will be smarter ways to go forward if we, can, if we can sort of look up and realize what we can do.
4: So just along those lines, you know, with the military always being there at the time of emergency where it is, and it's global, right? Um, how do, we, how do we as a country make sure that our military has what it needs in such remote spaces right, and, and at, the t- at the right time right there? Well,
3: you know, that's interesting because additive manufacturing is a good example of that. Um, if The digital economy and being able to digital manufacturing is really important because oftentimes if we have the additive manufacturing on board the ship, then we can start making our own parts there instead of the ship being resupplied with parts or having to go into port to get resupplies we can actually start making things right on site for a lot of these activities. So you know these are these are new ways to think about enabling technology um, and that's a, a, a perfect example. Um, you know if, if you look back the University of Maine in in their manufacturing innovation was using additive manufacturing to very rapidly uh, uh, within 48 hours be able to to build a ship. (laughs) <laughs> they did a tutorial ship recently. So uh, you know, these are the sort of things that can be big, it can be small parts, it can be things that you have on demand. Uh, so there's a range of ideas and technologies uh, that are moving forward. By, as I mentioned before, biotechnology, being able to take a lot of our waste products and turn it into energetic material is, um, and, and do it on site. Um, I mean, the technologies are there. They need to be scaled up and scaled out.
4: And maybe some of, like if you go back to your venture fund kind of days, maybe there's some of these that just needs to be open sourced so that you know, everybody can jump in and start doing it themselves. Well, I,
3: I agree with that. Um, I, I, what I love too, when we did, at DARPA, when we did the, um, uh, the, the, the challenges for uh, autonomous vehicles, the grand challenge, we did three of them. And one of the things that I saw, which was great, was, I mean, ideas came from everywhere. They came from a student, they came from high school students, they came from universities, they came from companies, they came from individuals in the back garage. And what I saw was fantastic because one year, you know, everybody showed up with different things. Um, there was there was one one graduate student that he, dro- he dropped out in order to do this and, and he did something called the Ghost Rider, which was a motorcycle. And, and I, I kind of was surprised at that thinking, okay, an autonomous vehicle at that time was kind of crazy. Actually, the demand came from the fact that we were losing a lot of people in the logistics trail um, out in in, in Iraq. Um, And so that, why do we have people there? Why don't we have autonomous delivery? So that was sort of the the demand idea. Um, But... But so, so, so now, not only did he have Ghost Rider as, a, as, as an autonomous vehicle, but as a motorcycle, which I thought was you know making, making it even harder. But it was interesting to watch the motorcycle go upright and, and keep going. And then I saw a lot of uh, technology on the vehicles across the board for visualization and identification and algorithms being used. But what happened at a rapid rate as we went to the Grand Challenge, the first time, the second time, and the third time, was the strategies that were there as became adaptable across all the platforms. So all the success strategies, you know, like Glidar and everything else, the algorithms there for uh, looking at visualization, um, there were some novel uses of it the first time, the second time, everybody was using it. I mean that adaptability and that rate was rapid, uh, and now you know oftentimes, and I always laugh. We, we DARPA, at DARPA, they always know they succeed when everybody forgets about what DARPA did, and everybody just assumes they, they're within 200 feet of their car, and they can get on their iPhone, and the car will show up to where they are. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, the, you know, having autonomous, uh, you know, vehicles or having that capability within your vehicle is now is now sort of starting to be the commercial norm. <laughs> so so that's when you really succeed, everybody forgets about what you did and it's it's in use. But if we can have that reach for all those good ideas if we can create an opportunity where that acceleration and adaptation can can take place, then that joint participation from a government uh, investment side, a commercial investment side, that moves things out. And I always think that if we can if we can get it into into common use, a lot of these capabilities, then the DoD is important. It's important for the DoD because if we can't make it and have it out there, even on a commercial competitive basis, it's hard to buy. And use within the services. So I think that that is a natural um, relationship there, and, and having that um, healthy industrial base and uh, having the industrial base being able to rapidly use these innovations going forward is going to be imp- important for our future.
0: Barbara McQuiston of the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering at DOD. You can read more about innovation at DOD in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast is back tomorrow afternoon with a new Fed Scoop News Countdown, the three most important federal news stories of the week, as selected by two experts in the federal government community. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.